Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School 1998 Summer Session. We've had to change 150 documents to reflect the fact that Rare Book School is now uh, moving steadily towards 52 weeks a year. I'll have more to say about this on Thursday. I hope either tonight or Thursday that you will take a look at the dinosaurs that surround you, the uh, collection of books and Why are you laughing? <laughs> the collection of books and realia from uh, the dinosaur collection of Edward Velasquez. Velasquez has many other interests, but this is certainly one. And uh, the books are very engaging. I'm grateful to Caroline Brashears on the Rare Book School staff who spent most of the month of June with the dinosaurs in putting up a, quite a complicated show. The next lecture in this series is Daniel Traster's lecture on dead books, and that will be in room 201 Clements Library, not in this room. I'll be speaking here on Thursday. Tom Tansel has been lecturing to the Book Arts Press and to Rare Book School for many years. He has spoken on the 12th of July, the 14th of July, the 15th of July, the 17th, and the 18th of July in 1993, 7, 6, 5, and 4. This very nearly completes the suite, tonight being the 13th of July, if we can get him to come and speak on the 16th of July, I will have a royal flush. He is perhaps our favorite Rare Book School speaker, it's always a great pleasure to have him back speaking tonight on a rationale of collecting. Thomas Tansel. Thank you, Terry. It's always a pleasure to return to Rare Book School. My talk this evening is a considerably condensed version of an essay to appear in the next volume of Studies in Bibliography, which, as most of you know, is published by the Bibliographical Society here at Virginia and is expertly edited by David Vandermulen, who is here in the back row. Collecting, in one form or another, is so much a part of humanity's experience that it has aroused endless speculation regarding its origins, its motives, its essential nature. There are debates about whether it is instinctive or acquired, about whether it is a rational activity or a mental disease, mania being one of the terms often applied to it, sometimes with affection, sometimes not. Most such discussions illuminate some aspect of the subject, but even in their totality, they do not encompass all the causes and all the results of collecting. Like every human behavior, collecting is complex enough that there is always something more to be said about it. The attempt to understand collecting not only adds to our knowledge of human nature, but also enhances the experience of collecting itself. For whether one collects Renaissance paintings or cigar boxes, Greek antiquities or coffee mugs, rare books or advertising brochures, 
one's sense of self-awareness is increased by being able to place one's own endeavors in a framework that comprehends the full panoply of related pursuits. To think about collecting in this inclusive way requires, I believe, a definition that makes everyone a collector. I would say simply that collecting is the accumulation of tangible things. This definition covers the assembling of natural objects like fossils and shells and living entities like plants and animals, as well as artifacts, the products of humanity. And it leaves open the manner in which the things are acquired, the mental processes leading to their acquisition, and the length of time they are held. Some would object that a definition under which everyone is a collector has insufficient precision to be useful for analysis. I would argue, on the contrary, that only by linking all forms of collecting can we illuminate the fundamental nature of the myriad directions it can take. The kinds of accumulating we are most likely to think of when we hear the word collecting are not separated by distinct lines from other types of gathering, and recognition of these relationships helps to clarify them all. There is, for example, the matter of need. Some might feel that the concept of collecting must involve accumulations that are in excess of what is needed for survival, or put another way, gatherings that serve no strictly utilitarian function. Collecting, so the argument runs, is a vestige of the instinct for foraging and hoarding found in animals and primitive peoples. When the so-called need no longer exists, the hunting and gathering continue anyway and become attached to different classes of objects now not connected with shelter or bodily nourishment. But such an argument, ignoring the reality of emotional needs, begs the question of what constitutes need, which is never easy to answer. Even animals hoarding does not always seem to be realistically related to the necessities of maintaining life, and prehistoric human beings are now thought to have admired and saved certain tools for aesthetic reasons. When one tries to identify human needs, one is bound to hear in the back of one's mind Lear's, oh, reason not the need. The possessions not strictly necessary for bodily survival nevertheless may seem required for establishing a sense of human identity and defining one's place in the world. Nomadic tribes and homeless street people have their possessions, and those persons or families who lose their accumulated store of objects through fires, storms, robberies, and other catastrophes generally find that their feelings of good fortune in still being alive are naggingly tempered by their sense of deprivation, since they are not as fully alive without the objects that they had made part of their existence. Lord Eccles, in his book On Collecting, observes, During the Blitz on London, I saw how simple and profound was the passion for things of one's own. The morning after people had been bombed out, they grieved far less for the house or rooms where they had been living than for their things, the things their mother had left them or their children had given them. The bomb which destroyed their things destroyed part of themselves. 
It is unwise, then, to complicate a definition of collecting with the idea of need, not only because it is so difficult to pin down, but also, more importantly, because all forms of amassing objects can, in fact, be necessities of life, if the role of emotional well-being in physical survival is adequately taken into account. Indeed, it is not unreasonable to claim, as I hope to show, that the possession of objects is for everyone an essential element of life support. Another objection that might be raised against the simplicity of my definition is that it does not distinguish random accumulations of objects from purposeful selections. Surely, some will feel the term collection should be reserved for those assemblages that have been systematically built according to a unifying principle and should not be used to dignify the miscellaneous stock of possessions, or even one class of them, that grows up around individuals year by year. It is, in fact, quite conventional to think of collections as different from accumulations, but it is not very satisfactory because it skirts the question of how or by whom the coherence of a collection is to be determined. What one person accumulates haphazardly, another will regard as bearing a design, and even the product of a careful plan may turn out to be of interest to another person for an entirely different pattern that can be read into it. In any case, all accumulations are actually selections and therefore imbued with meaning through that selectivity. Every object that is taken in, that is given entrance to one's house or room or personal space, acquires thereby a significance and alters the relationship of everything else within that domain. And every such object is a selection from the vast universe of objects. Some objects, of course, arrive unbidden, but if they are retained, even through inertia and only temporarily, they are still revealing. Every accumulation, whatever additional significance it may be found to possess, has the unity that comes from its telling something about a human being who lived in a particular time and place. Archivists regularly deal with residues, and they have been wise to recognize that found arrangements of personal papers in archaeological layers that can seem random, carry meaning that is worth paying attention to. Clearly, one may wish to distinguish different types of individuals and to separate those who deliberately pursue their own ideas of coherent groupings from those who give no conscious thought to why their possessions are multiplying as they are. But this discrimination will be richer if it is based on an acknowledgement that both types of persons are related, that they are overlapping varieties of collectors. <clears throat> Still another element of my definition that must logically be dealt with is its limitation to tangible things. If one is going to take a comprehensive view of collecting, can one not speak of collecting ideas and other intangibles as well as physical entities? The word collect can, of course, be used this way and regularly is, as when people speak of collecting Caribbean cruises or performances by Gielgud or any other experiences, in the same way that Thoreau felt that he could own something without taking physical possession of it. 
Every mindset in which one collects one's thoughts consists of an ever-developing collection of mental routines. Everyone has this kind of collection, as well as a collection of physical objects. And there is inevitably a reciprocal relationship between the two, since the mindset, or temperament, determines which objects one allows to accumulate, and the environment created by those objects in turn influences the mindset. But there is a fundamental difference between thoughts and objects, between an internal repertoire of ideas and an external grouping of tangible materials. And this dividing line is more profound than any that may be formulated to separate one kind of assemblage of physical objects from another. It appears reasonable, therefore, to exclude mental repertoires from our present definition of a collection but not to eliminate any form of tangible accumulation. Even so, the former remains relevant to the discussion because the latter cannot be thoughtfully considered without recognizing its source in the need of the individual to bridge the gap, to bring what is or seems external within one's personal orbit. One of the most perceptive treatments of the subject is Walter Benjamin's famous essay, Unpacking My Library, a talk about book collecting. In it, he asks a penetrating question. What else is this collection but a disorder to which habit has accommodated itself to such an extent that it can appear as order? The pleasures of the chase and of adding to one's assemblage are framed by Benjamin in the same terms. He says, The most profound enchantment for the collector is the locking of individual items within a magic circle in which they are fixed as the final thrill, the thrill of acquisition, passes over them. The boundaries of a collection enclose what he calls a magic space because any object once fixed within it, becomes part of a created order. Benjamin recognizes that collectors deal with a dialectical tension between the poles of disorder and order. But he does not go much beyond these few sentences in exploring the point. Whether, if asked to expand his discussion, he would have taken the direction I will take here is impossible to say. But I do believe that the human need to find order should be thought about as a fundamental and possibly the most fundamental explanation of collecting. The starting point for thinking about collecting is recognizing the human feeling of wonder that things seem to exist outside the self. The amazement and curiosity aroused by the apparent infinitude of animate and inanimate things that constantly impinge on one's consciousness. And the wonder is not only that these things have an independent existence, but also that they seem to have had a pre-existence, that is, to have a history that antedates our awareness of them. The act of reaching out and touching them therefore produces contact both with the environment and with the past. Obviously, infants do not consciously have such thoughts, and neither do a great many adults. But philosophers systematically consider the relation of the self 
to the non-self, and many other people think and sometimes write about it in less organized ways. In one fashion or another, at some level of the mind, everyone responds to the puzzle of whether the self is or can be connected to what seems to be outside it. The infant grasping and tightly holding a teddy bear, the expert in old master drawings pursuing and capturing another example for a collection, and all other acquisitors of tangible things are proving to themselves that they can make physical contact with that outside realm and by seizing something from it can subjugate one small part of it and to that extent render it more controllable and orderly. The process gives pleasure by conveying the sense that one is in some measure mastering one's environment, that one is less disoriented in the face of confusion. There is an accompanying and insatiable need to repeat the process, both because one seeks continued reassurance and because each instance brings renewed pleasure. This process can be analyzed into several components, which include creation of order, fascination with chance, curiosity about the past, and desire for understanding. A sense of order is produced by the act of acquiring a tangible thing because that thing has been removed from one context, immense and inexplicable, and set within a different one, familiar and manageable. Each acquisition takes its place in relation to the other items already present within this context. All the relationships among the items may shift somewhat as a result, but the new arrival is not an alien. Since the whole is conceptually graspable, the newcomer fits simply by virtue of being there. Whereas in the outside world, being there is not enough. For just what an item is fitting into, if it is doing so at all, is not clear. I take it that Benjamin's reference to the locking of individual items within a magic circle in which they are fixed is his way of making the same point. Another perceptive writer on collecting, Stephen Jay Gould, uses a similar expression in his absorbing study of eight collectors of fossils. He speaks of the urge to bring part of a limitless diversity into an orbit of personal or public appreciation. The magic circle, the orbit, imposes a structure on what is placed within it, and the individual repeatedly finds ways of moving more and more things from the outside to the inside of that space, gaining satisfaction each time from the sense of taming another talisman of wildness. This drive to create order coexists with a fascination for chance. These two are natural partners because the gathering of tangible things entails a constant engagement with contingency, and one is inevitably dazzled by the diverse succession of things that pass one's way. What one gathers is dependent on what one encounters, and one's active seeking is a way of trying to encounter more. But despite one's attempts to increase the odds of finding something, what one actually finds is still a matter of chance. 
The connection between collecting and gambling has often been made. Both involve jousting with fate, an exhilarating activity because it makes one feel unusually engaged with a basic force of life. The desire to find out what will show up next impels the gambler to play one game after another untiringly and drives the collector with unceasing eagerness to proceed from one antique shop or other likely source to another. Chance fascinates us not only because it produces endless variety, but also because we feel that there must be a way to tame it, to pluck from it some reassurances of order. The television program Antiques Roadshow, in which people bring their possessions to experts for evaluation, illustrates the randomness in the distribution of objects and the fact that such randomness is a significant part of the interest the show holds for its participants and its viewers. A large portion of those who bring items for inspection would not consider themselves collectors, for what they bring comes from the accumulations they live with, including the residues they have retained from previous (coughs) generations. An amazement that these items now reside where they do is an unspoken emotion of the owners of the items and of the experts as well. Just as for the viewers, the miscellaneous succession of items has the same appeal as browsing in a shop where one cannot predict what will turn up next. A curiosity about the past is also part of the reason that people's attention is captured by this show as by other parades of objects. Every object acquires an interest quite separate from whatever significance it may have held for its previous possessors. Since it is a tangible survivor from an earlier moment, putting one in touch, literally, with a vanished time. Indeed, because an object was looked at and touched by people in the interval, however long or short, between its origin and the present, It provides a link not merely to one past moment, but to a series of them. When one observes a tangible thing in this way, thinking of it as a survivor, one gives close attention to all its sensuous aspects, all its physical features, any of which may proclaim something of the origin and subsequent life of the item. This sort of scrutiny, though it may subsume some understanding of the original function of an item, focuses on as many observable details as possible, whether or not they have a bearing on that function. A picture is studied not merely as an efficient utilitarian object, but also as a tangible thing of a particular shape, material, decoration, glaze, and so on. Items conveying verbal or musical texts, like books and sheet music, are examined not only for those texts and their graphic design, but also for other physical elements that mark the objects as products of the workmanship of a given time, such as clues revealing the source and date of the paper or the printing and proofreading procedures followed in the printing shop. Even objects intended solely as visual displays like paintings and the whole spectrum of objet d'art, can be seen as carrying two kinds of exhibitions, not entirely distinct. An aesthetic construct in which such materials as paint 
or crystal or porcelain reflect the visions of creators and inspire various, similar or different, visions in observers, and a technical construct in which the nature of the materials and their manipulation take center stage, regardless of the fact that many of the details thus examined were not intended to be noticed by observers. A sense of this concentration on objects as objects is what Benjamin captured in one of his most telling and eloquently succinct statements, that a collector studies and loves objects as the scene, the, the stage of their fate. The object itself tells the story of its life. A desire for understanding is the natural next step that follows from curiosity. When one repeatedly investigates objects in the manner just described, one builds up an inventory of details that form the background against which additional objects are looked at, and in this way a body of knowledge develops. A further fascination of Antiques Roadshow is the array of specialists called upon, which not only confirms the fact that no object is too arcane to fall within the expertise of someone, but also implicitly teaches a valuable lesson that all objects, however lowly, deserve to have experts studying them and to be taken seriously as part of the mosaic of the past. Possessing the requisite knowledge for placing an individual item in a historical setting and assessing its quality relative to other similar items is often called connoisseurship which is simply a form of scholarship. People sometimes think of taste and judgment as the primary traits of a connoisseur, but those qualities must be integrated with solid learning, and that combination is essential for all sound scholarship. The only way that so-called facts become established is through taste and judgment, which could also be called sensitive and balanced evaluation, applied to evidence. The conclusions reached by this procedure stand as facts as long as qualified investigators are not able to find flaws in the arguments or equally plausible alternatives or incompatible new evidence. Facts are hypotheses that have not been convincingly refuted. Collectors, in one degree or another, all engage in this process the same one pursued by scientists, social scientists, and scholars of every kind whose search for understanding is a search for order. Artists, too, in their own way, propose visions of order, just as we all do through our physical possessions. If one asks why some people become physicists and others novelists and others collectors in their drive to find patterns, I would reply that the question is not properly phrased, since everyone is a collector. Why some become astronomers and others composers is indeed an interesting question involving individual temperaments and experiences, but it is on a different level from a question about the sources of collecting. However else one tries to come to terms with the outside world, one assembles objects and lives among them in one's own created environment. 
Martin Conway put this matter memorably when he said, Upon most of us, a necessity seems to be laid to obtain possession of objects, not always beautiful, by which our lives thenceforward are conditioned and our goings out and comings in suffer a daily fettered freedom. Sometimes one's things are related to one's other efforts and sometimes they are not, but the accumulating of things is always there, manifesting our fundamental search for understanding and illustrating its essential process, the continued attempt to form comprehensible constructions. We all create installations, whether we call ourselves visual artists or not. <coughs> the pursuit of understanding through objects has yet another dimension. Since tangible things have lives as well as origins, they take us back to a number of past times. Objects not only stimulate us to discover how they came to exist and what their original function was, they also tease us into probing their subsequent status and adventures. Whatever we can learn about how particular objects were regarded over time furthers our sense of understanding our environment by making us more fully aware of the history that every object embodies. We know the recent histories of our current possessions, having lived through various events with them. And we inevitably associate each item with particular successions of events, recollections of which are triggered by the sight or the thought of the object. People also know that their things played similar roles for previous possessors, and that all other objects as well have survived unique series of events the desire to learn these stories is an important manifestation of the need for the ordering power of knowledge. The connections of collecting with narrative have been explored by a number of writers. Roger Cardinal opens his essay on Kurt Schwitters, which links collage making and collecting, with an eloquent expression of collecting as narrative. In its sequential evolution, he says, the focus of such discussions is sometimes on collecting as a narrative itself and sometimes on the narratives that people find released by objects. The two naturally shade into each other. All the stories we associate with objects have a significant place in our collecting narratives because they form an important part of our relationship with the tangible world. Benjamin, as he was unpacking his library, recounted some of the episodes certain volumes conjured up, exclaiming, what memories crowd in upon you. Nancy Hale, in the opening chapter of her classic reminiscence, The Life in the Studio, movingly lingers over the objects left in her mother's studio, recalling their associations with her mother filtered through her own encounters with them while her mother was alive. The most extended such act of recollection is perhaps Mario Prats's La Casa della Vita, in which the profuse detail of the stories aroused in him by each object matches the richness of his self-created environment. This congruence prepares the reader for Prats's feeling at the end that he has himself become one of his collected objects. 
Such an expression of unity with one's collection is a metaphor for the successful pursuit of understanding, the feeling that one has learned so much about certain objects as to make them no longer seem part of a puzzling realm outside the self. One looks at them with a feeling of mastery and deep comprehension. The four aspects of collecting that I've been describing, the creation of order, a fascination with chance, curiosity about the past, and a desire for understanding, are all subsumed under the urge to tame the external world. This general idea, in which collecting is traced to a human need for making the environment seem less threatening and more understandable, has been much in evidence in the last few decades as cultural critics have become more interested in the process of collecting and in its results, for any rationale of collecting must cover not only the functions of collecting for the individual, but also its social uses. The most fundamental contribution that collecting makes to public life is that it affects the way everyone sees the world. One person's set of possessions, whether glimpsed by a few neighbors or more widely shared in a private or institutional setting, is part of the external chaos faced by other people and thus plays a role in their experience of life. However coherent or formless a group of possessions may appear, it inevitably offers juxtapositions that would not have existed without the collector's intervention in the fates of those objects. Since everyone is a collector, what we are really talking about is one of the ways humanity leaves its mark on the environment. The motivations of those whose marks in the form of their possessions are still evident may not be understood, and in any case, we may not have the same responses as our predecessors to the groupings they formed. But those configurations are part of the given that we have inherited, influencing our own efforts to make sense of what we see and our own assemblages of objects. Whatever understanding we create for ourselves is different from what it would have been if the material world, including other people's accumulations, had been different. This situation is the basis for what we call the advancement of knowledge. What I see in a group of objects may turn out to be the same as what some earlier viewers, including perhaps the collector, saw there. And it is likely to be something I would not have perceived without that particular conjunction of objects. When people repeatedly find the same patterns, they form the consensus necessary to justify calling what they have found a fact, which of course can only be a provisional classification subject to refutation. In this way, collections advance knowledge. Preservation is the underlying key to such advances because without the survival of the items, repeated viewings of them could not occur. Even though the meanings of objects derive from their contexts and associations, the objects themselves must exist before they can be studied in a context. And the role of collectors in salvaging things, at least for a while, from the destructive stream of time is the fundamental service they provide to the growth of learning. Objects surviving from a past 
ancient or recent, sometimes seem suspended in a puzzling limbo without context, but they are nevertheless there, awaiting future observation. Their survival allows them to be our touchstones to the past, placing us in a line of succession that links all those who have touched the objects from the time of their creation to the present. As John Elsner and Roger Cardinal say in an important essay on collecting, there is a past that lies right here. And collecting, which preserves that past, is important, in their words, because it shuns closure and the security of received evaluations and focuses our attention on what surrounds us in all its unpredictability and contingent complexity. In this spirit, they emphasize the usefulness of collecting against the grain. This frame of mind is characterized by openness and independence, by a recognition that everything is worthy of being saved, not just those things that are regarded as collectible by the fashion of a given moment. No collecting is trivial on either a personal or a public level because there is no limit to what may have significance for a given individual or within a given milieu. In the now thriving field of museum studies, which has produced much of the recent writing about collecting, there has been some de debate over the relative value of objects versus the value of the knowledge derived from them. Put another way, the question is whether museums should emphasize the acquisition and display of objects or the creation of contextual educational exhibits in which original objects, if present at all, are subordinated to broader historical recreation and explication. This supposed issue is one of those false dilemmas where the two sides are so interrelated that they cannot be separated. Those who take the side of the objects are, of course, right in the sense that the objects must come first. But stating one's allegiance to objects in the framework of this debate implies that they can be seen independently of the subjective responses they arouse. One cannot complain about explicitly pedagogical displays on the grounds that they yoke objects to a particular present-day viewpoint for any selection and arrangement of objects inevitably does the same thing. But one can legitimately disapprove of any extrapolation that implies its own infallibility or self-sufficiency. All collectors, individual or institutional, acquire and place objects in relation to some context which emerges from a combination of temperament and learning. And their imaginative constructs cause observers, who can also be called the next round of collectors, to have insights and to form collections that might not have occurred otherwise. This ineluctable process leads us toward the only kind of truths we can have about the past, for while we can never wholly avoid reading the present into a past object, we can make a conscious effort not to, and unless we proceed in this fashion, no knowledge is possible. The way objects convey knowledge has been made clearer in the past few decades by the development of a field or an approach called material culture study. 
Although it ought to be obvious that we learn about the past through its physical survival, this point in its broadest implications has been little enough regarded in the past that the recent writers on material culture have often been considered proselytizers for something new and have not infrequently met with resistance. By now, there have been a number of useful statements on the subject, as well as studies exemplifying the approach. But even the best of them often exhibit a curious disparity between their treatment of objects that carry verbal texts, like books and manuscripts, and those that do not. For example, the art historian Jules David Prown almost undercuts his perceptive discussion by asserting near the end, artifacts tell us something, but facts are transmitted better by verbal documents. He is by no means alone in perpetuating the unexamined assumption, implicit here, that words speak to us more unambiguously and truthfully than visual images do, and thus that documents, artifacts transmitting verbal texts, are somehow different, in essence, from other objects. What material culture study must convey if it is to elaborate its basic insight coherently is both a recognition of the value of all physical objects without exception and an understanding of the ontological sameness of them all. Printed matter is still matter, and what its words seem to be saying, rarely a certainty in any case, must be interpreted in relation to what the whole object is saying. For these reasons, book collecting is a particularly instructive example of how the assembly of objects contributes to the growth of knowledge. Many people assume that verbal texts can readily be transferred intact from one object to another. To them, the only reason to collect books, physical objects, instead of works, texts in any embodiment, is an interest in the crafts of bookmaking and in the printing and publishing industries. Indeed, book collectors are often thought of as falling into two categories, those who assemble texts in any edition to be read, and those who bring together specific editions, not necessarily to be read, but to be possessed as objects worthy of attention. The latter group is sometimes ridiculed as not seriously interested in the ideas conveyed by verbal texts. But anyone who makes such a criticism can only be a person who has not yet learned that books, being physical objects, are most fruitfully read in the same way that all other objects are read. The field of analytical bibliography, now about a century and a half old, exists to demonstrate that the physical evidence in books can disclose a great deal about how those books were produced, what effect the production process had on the texts, and how the texts were perceived by those who produced the books and those who read them. Scholars in this field, by studying books as physical objects, contribute to printing and publishing history, to scholarly editing, to the history of reading, to the whole process of placing texts in historical contexts. That the makeup and wording of texts are affected by the processes of book production means that the interpretation of texts can never be divorced 
from the examination of the objects conveying them. Our reading of verbal works and our knowledge of their origins would be impoverished if we had only current reproductions of texts and were deprived of the great store of books that are physical survivors from earlier times. Book collecting, therefore, advances knowledge in the same way that the saving of all other objects contributes to our understanding of the past. And this understanding, in turn, affects our life in the present. Not only in the sense usually meant by this conventional sentiment, but also because those objects are a part of the present. Nabokov's well-known account of his obsession with butterflies and butterfly collecting provides an eloquent illustration of how the strands discussed here come together in individual lives. Butterflies did serve for Nabokov as tangible reminders of episodes in his own life. And even the smell of ether, used as the killing agent for one of his earliest childhood catches, would, he said, always cause the porch of the past to light up. His further encounters with butterflies, his repeated acts of observation and pursuit, made him an expert lepidopterist, one who indeed contributed to the field through important published papers. His understanding that collecting and rigorous thinking go hand in hand was shown by his ridicule of those who advocated the relaxing of scientific standards for collectors. Their solicitude, he said, for the average collector who should not be made to dissect is comparable to the way nervous publishers of popular novels pamper the average reader who should not be made to think. Nabokov, of course, wrote novels as well as scientific articles, and he saw the connections. He said, I discovered in nature the non-utilitarian delights that I sought in art. He reserved his most moving words for a description of what he called the highest enjoyment of timelessness that came to him when he stood outdoors among rare butterflies. This is ecstasy, he said, and behind the ecstasy is something else which is hard to explain. It is like a momentary vacuum into which rushes all that I love, a sense of oneness with sun and stone, a thrill of gratitude to whom it may concern, to the contrapuntal genius of human fate or to tender ghosts humoring a lucky mortal. One can have such an epiphany in nature without being a collector of natural things. But whatever accumulations one does have, put one in the frame of mind for creating this private sense of belonging. Nabokov's response to butterflies in the wild was undoubtedly reinforced by his experience of placing them in his collection, just as everyone's constructed settings provide patterns for seeing the world. For some people, the pleasure of amassing objects is increased by knowing that the activity supports scholarship, science, and art. For others, the satisfactions are entirely personal, but the results are nevertheless of public benefit. 
collecting is a prime example of behavior in which private desire and social gain are mutually supportive. This symbiosis is not surprising since the drive that brings about private assemblages of objects is the same one that impels scientists, artists, and scholars to search for meaning on a level that others can assent to, producing in the process the consensus that is knowledge. The paradox that our search for organization and regularity is conducted with passion and primal energy was brilliantly captured by Wallace Stevens in the phrase, rage for order. The woman he describes in the idea of order at Key West, striding along the beach singing, not only creates order for herself through her song, but also affects the way her listeners subsequently view their surroundings, causing them to see patterns in the reflections of the fishing boat's lights, which mastered the night and portioned out the sea. This feeling of mastery, however temporary and provisional, is an emotional necessity, and we are all masters of the collections we surround ourselves with, all artists who create worlds with accumulated objects, whether or not we pursue our visions into the public sphere through display, research, or one of the forms we call art. What Joseph Carnell did in shaping his inspired boxes out of that vast assemblage of seemingly heterogeneous objects in his Utopia Parkway house is symbolic of what many others, often in less direct ways, have made of their object-filled surroundings. For Stevens, the rage for order is a blessed rage for order because this drive alone gives us a glimpse of what it means to be at home, to feel secure in the universe. The collecting we all do, with its varying repercussions, private and public, is our way of venting that rage of finding ourselves. Thank you. you'll all join our speaker at a reception in the first floor faculty lounge in the Alderman Library. <laughs>